Um, hello and welcome to Tea Time Theology. My name is Ivy Swinsky and we have a very special episode today. We are going to be talking about Lambeth Conference and I will pass it right on over to our guest today to introduce themselves to you all. Hi, I am Della Wager-Wells. I am the rector of Emmanuel Church in Newport and an important part of my work in the wider church I'd have to say it is the emphasis of my work in the wider church is with the Anglican communion. And, and so I would like to talk today about the Lambeth Conference 2022. The first question that I've been given kind of as a prompt, I want to answer more broadly than okay. maybe was intended. You have asked Ivy, a great question, what is Lambeth? And I think it's really important to begin with that. Lambeth refers to Lambeth Palace which has been the home of the Archbishop of Canterbury in London for over 800 years. And it is right at the other side of Westminster Bridge from Parliament, from Big Ben. And so the Archbishop of Canterbury easily walks over Westminster Bridge because he or she has a seat in the House of Lords. And that is an important part of the Archbishop of Canterbury's both ecclesial function and political function in the Church of England and in the UK. Um, additionally, the Archbishop of Canterbury is one of the, I'll say first four, but I'm going to make it five, four instruments of communion that hold the Anglican communion of 42 provinces in 165 countries together. And so the Archbishop of Canterbury is, is one of the instruments, as we say, instruments of communion. And by that instrument, we mean a, a way or a means to hold us all together. So the Archbishop of Canterbury is one. The Lambeth Conference of Bishops is two. The Primates Conference is three. And the Anglican Consultative Council, which is made up of appointed and elected representatives, clergy, and lay from all of the 42 now 42 provinces. They're the most recent one was the province of Alexandria, Egypt, which calved out of um, the province of Jerusalem in the Middle East in conversations that began back in 2018 and 2019. And Archbishop Sammy was just at the closing Eucharist um, given his primatial cross by the Archbishop of Canterbury because during the COVID shutdown, they were unable to meet in person for the celebrations. Only a few of the bishops and primates were able to be there for Archbishop Sammy's celebration as, as a new province. So that was part of the thing. So we've got the Archbishop of Canterbury, who has resided at Lambeth Palace in London for over 800 years. That's the first instrument of communion. Second is the Primates Conference. Third is... What's the Primates Conference? The Primates Conference is all of the primates who are the let me just say this, the 
difference and and what the what an Anglican church is is it's the indigenization and appropriation of the English Catholic Church wherever it exists. And so for because it takes on the political substance and the cultural substance of the relevant culture in the United States, our primate and our governing legislature, you know, we have a house of bishops, we have a bicameral legislature, just like our government. We have a house of bishops and we have a house of deputies and we don't have a king, right? We have a president, so we don't have an archbishop, we have a presiding bishop. And so that's why you have that presiding or presidency language associated with Bishop Michael Curry. In the, for example, Church of England, the primate of the Church of England is the Archbishop of York, who is um, Philip Cottrell. And, um, or Cottrell, I think they pronounce it there, Philip Cottrell. And so he is the, he is the primate of the Church of England, even though the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, is the president of the Anglican Consultative Council, the fourth instrument of communion, as well as the um, one of the instruments of communion in the global communion. Have I lost you yet? So there are four official <laughs> instruments of communion and the primates conference is made up of all of the primates. And that would include, for example, Michael Curry, who is the primate of the Episcopal Church, tech, as we're called in the communion. Um, he's the, he's the, the presiding bishop. And then um, used to be John Satamu is now uh, Philip Cottrell, uh, or Stephen Cottrell, sorry, not Philip, Stephen Cottrell. And then, um, you know, for example, Mambo Ndolwa, who's the Archbishop of Tanzania, or um, Archbishop Hossam Naum, who is the newly elected and about to be installed Archbishop of the province of Jerusalem in the Middle East. So that is the primates conferences. It's the primates of each of the 42 now existing provinces, which are in about 165 countries. Um, so that, that gets us to four. There was proposed at in under the Anglican identity conversation at Lambeth Conference, there was proposed a fifth instrument of communion, and that was to lift up and hear the voices, present the voices of those who have not traditionally wielded power, whether they are women in any context, whether they are minorities in any context, whether they are previously colonialized nations or provinces, but it was to lift up and make sure these voices are heard. Um, for reasons that we'll talk about as we go on, um, that was not met with wide reception at the conference. And there was even some joking around calling it instruments of confusion instead of instruments of communion. And the Archbishop of Canterbury himself talked about, you know, I'm, I'm the instrument of confusion because that's what they'd said the day before. But it was all in good humor. It is important to remember that those who spoke up and voiced that determination that we didn't need another instrument of communion were those, even though they may have been from colonialized areas, they were all pretty much powerful, as in they were they were bishops in the church. And so in that ecclesial power structure, whether they were from South Sudan, from impoverished areas of Kenya, from the global south, anywhere, they were still bishops. 
and they were not necessarily the women or the or the lay people from those those entities. I personally have always said the fifth instrument of communion is the Compass Rose Society, and that is really how I got involved in all of this 15 years ago. The Compass Rose Society was formed back in 1996 after a visit of then Archbishop of Canterbury, Lord Carey, George Carey, um, to South Sudan. And they got there and the Lambeth Palace staff said to the hosts, how many will there be for dinner? Or not for dinner, but how many will there be for communion? And they said, there won't be any communion. And there were 5,000 people there. They assembled across the plains like a flash mob, having walked days to come to see the Archbishop of Canterbury. And um, the answer came back, because we have no bread and we have no wine. And so when they all got back to London, Archbishop Carey just said, fix this. There's got to be a way that the Archbishop of Canterbury's ministry globally in reconciliation and relationship is so important. How can we solve, how can we move these barriers to his relationship and his ministry of relationship? So that's where the Compass Rose Society came from. And I always say that we're the fifth instrument of communion. Because it is unofficial, it looks like the rest of the Anglican communion, as Desmond Tutu used to say, we're Anglicans because we meet. And that's where our power is, is not in legislation, but in conversation. And so I, I kind of love, even though I was excited about the potential fifth instrument of communion in, the, in lifting up unheard voices, um, I still will always say the compass rose is the fifth instrument of communion. So that gets us to what is Lambeth. Lambeth is the Conference of Bishops, right? And they meet typically every, every 10 years. And the last Lambeth Conference was in um, July and August of 2008. And so as you add up on your fingers, you see that that's not quite 10 years ago. It was more than that. It was 14. And the reason for that is um, it's there are multiple reasons. There are reasons of polity and reasons of, um, of church and conversation. And there are also reasons of pandemic. And so for, we spent two years, an extra two years trying to be in conversation with um, provinces and bishops who were feeling put out with the Episcopal Church tech, particularly after 2003 and the consecration of Jean Robinson. Um, and then COVID hit and we had all of the constraints and we had to, we had to step back and, and reconfigure and reconsider again. And so finally at year 14, it, fe it felt really important and really wonderful to be together in person. Um, does everybody agree all the time? They do not, but there were some just astonishing moments of compassion and clarity that um, I think anybody who, wit who witnessed them will never forget. We, the idea is to be in a three-year process, one year to get ready, to work on the reconciliation calls and all of the different nine post-Lambeth outcome calls, one year to have the conference itself in person, and then a year to discuss post-Lambeth outcomes to develop procedures to stay in conversation on these important topics for the next 10 years. That's amazing. Um, I want to take us back one step yep. in the question of how did this 
start? Like, who decided that this conference should happen? As you said, the Lambeth has the place physically has been here for about 800 years. Has this been going on for 800 years? Not for 800 years. I I didn't want to go all Anglican nerdy on you. I figured you'd try to throw a rotten tomato through the iPhone. Um, But it's been going on since 1867. And we don't have to get into all of the details about it. But it was it was raised. And obviously, that was a very different communion in 1867. Mm -hmm. And even... um, even the African countries that were then had the Anglican church in them, they were largely English bishops until very recently. I mean, just remember that Desmond Tutu was the first African bishop in South Africa. He succeeded, I think, Trevor Huddleston, who was was a Church of England bishop, both in South Africa and in Tanzania for a while, but they were Church of England bishops. And so before the indigenization of the church, they were still questions about, um, you know, what do we believe? How do we, how do we um, speak with, with um, understanding and unity, if not unanimity on theological education? How do we understand unity, faith, and order? How do we walk together? You know, a lot of the questions that are being considered now with more particularity. Um, And so the first one was in 1867. And then they were roughly every 10 years following that. I think to to get more detailed than that would be to go total full on church nerd. And I'm not (laughs) sure everybody would be happy with that. I mean, it is what it is what we're here to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Definitely. Um, Taylor, did you have another question? Um, Yeah. I mean, uh, in, in your, um, and what you just said, you said there were moments of uh, compassion and clarity during this Lambeth. I don't know if you wanted to touch on that or maybe we can save that till later. I would I would love to do that. Let me talk a little bit about the calls. And that also gets into how I happen to be at the Lambeth Conference first. Um, I have known since I went to my first Compass Rose meeting in 2008 and I may have told you this story before, but I was um, I was retiring as senior warden of my large urban parish in Atlanta, Georgia, All Saints Atlanta. And um, it was the habit of the rector, Jeffrey Hoare, to invite the retiring warden to go to represent All Saints at the Compass Rose Annual General Meeting in England. And it goes back and forth between being held at Lambeth Palace in, or Uh, held in London or held at Canterbury. And so it was held at Canterbury that year and the um, Lambeth Conference had just been there. The Lambeth Conference had just finished up in August. And so I walked in not knowing, um, having been an Episcopalian all my life, not knowing that the Anglican Communion wasn't like an office or a letterhead or an idea or a poster. Um, But seeing all of the relics of the conversations and the topics that were discussed, and it just hit me like a wrecking ball, that that was who I was and was supposed to be. Um, It had such resonance with everything I had been doing at that point for 25 years in my law practice. I had a law practice that was 
um, focused on public projects and I often explained what I did to my partners who were Episcopalian by helping them understand that, you know, that, that cities fit inside states and authorities the way parishes fit inside dioceses that fit inside provinces that fit inside the Anglican communion. And the whole point of that is to be in relationship with one another, offer insights particular to shared experiences and individual experiences, and to offer support and from a practical standpoint, economies of scale and shared services and learning and all of that kind of thing. And they're also doing just really amazing things around, particularly in um, Africa, around clean water and around energy and around things that I had been doing in project work all of my practice and really, really cared about. And so those things became really important to me. So I get to, I get to Canterbury, I see all of this stuff and I'm like, oh, well, clearly that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I um, embarked at that time on a process of taking one um, course in seminary every semester for seven years until I finally was, had trained my staff and was ready to retire and go full-time to seminary. So um, that was how I got involved. And I, I saw that and I thought, huh, that is, um, that is a, a really important and, um, and unexpected outcome of you know, this whole visit. <laughs> that, that's how I came here. To, I mean, that's how I ended up here today. Wonderful. Amazing. Thank you. Um, what is the purpose of Lambeth? Why, why does it happen? Oh, that's a great question. And I just remembered that Taylor had asked a way more important question than I'd answered. Um, the, pur <laughs> the purpose of Lambeth um, is to provide opportunities for conversation and sharing to bring unity and not unanimity across our shared experiences because it's never meant that we're supposed to be of all, all of one view. We're all different. We're all kinds of different. I mean, you, you just name the possibility, possible kinds of different. We've got all of them, whether it's gender, nationality, age, ethnicity, um, education, socioeconomic standing. What color is the dirt where you live? You know, what, what does the temperature of the air feel like? Everybody is coming from a different environment. Um, and so the opportunity is to just inquire into those environments and to learn about them. So um, the purpose of Lambeth is to provide those discussion points. And so the engagement this time was to work around nine areas. And I'm probably not going to be able to list all nine of them, but there was the obviously the the one that attracted so much attention the human dignity which was the sexuality one but around human dignity around the environment around persecution of christians around interfaith matters reconciliation gender justice um the last couple will elude me but i can find a list and read it to you but these these points were were picked up in advance by the Lambeth design team, which was working for, gosh, six years at least. Um, and, and 
then the chairs of those committees put together drafting teams and discussion teams, which were intricately diverse across all of those areas I mentioned, and people from all different parts of the communion um, and all ages, youth representatives, clergy, ordained, not ordained, lay people, and Archbishop Taba Magoba, who is the primate of the Anglican Church of Southern Africa, Desmond Tutu's successor, um, invited me to serve as the draftsperson on the reconciliation call. And so in terms of my, well, there was the youth representative, Clifton Ned, who is probably 25 or so. Um, but other than Clifton, I would say I was definitely the um, lowest link on the food chain. I mean, it was, uh, there were other bishops. There were brand new bishop, Sally Sue Hernandez from Mexico City. So a, a young woman from the global south. Um, the Eleanor Sanderson, who just was um, elected, not yet translated to the Diocese of Hull in the Church of England, coming from New Zealand, where she had been the assistant bishop in a province or in a, in a diocese there. Um, the dean of the cathedral in, in Cape Town, South Africa. I mean, it's just an amazing group of people of diversity. And we met so um, thoughtfully, prayerfully, respectfully um, over such a long period of time and, and so carefully crafted what we called our reconciliation call, our affirmation of the verses from First Peter, which was our organizing um, our organizing biblical passage. We worked with First Peter, which is a, for some people, and all of us met it this way, a text of terror, because it does write into slavery and struggle. And we were offered through all of the scholarship of these amazing people who worked with it, an alternate view of First Peter, which I learned has been used as um, a transgressive text in the global south for for decades and they've always known first peter as a transgressive text as a text that speaks into slavery in a coded way so that if you're reading it as one who is not an alien and an exile you would never know that it's not affirming your position of oppression you know that you're you are in charge and the government is right to hold down people who are in service but it's addressed to aliens and exiles. And so if you hear it as an alien and exile and an exile, it's a whole different message. So using that basic text, we um, looked into and considered an affirmation. And what we did in reconciliation was we proposed the part about um, the, um, the priesthood, the royal priesthood, and the fact that each of us are different living stones all, all to be built together into God's house. So we used that, that text and, um, and then created affirmations about and a, and a discussion around the idea of what happens when um, we get away from our central ideas and what happens when we people are in oppression and, and are... Um, trying to, to gather the first Peter again. What happens, you're gonna to have to get this Taylor. What happens when, when um, 
Sorry, I just had a complete meltdown. What happens when the um, people who have traditionally wielded power offer reconciliation? And that was the insight that was given by um, the Dean of St. George's in, in Cape Town. And he had grown up in apartheid, apartheid. And so he was able to speak so compellingly about his experience there and how um, when reconciliation is offered or proposed by those who have traditionally wielded power, it's another bludgeon. It's another, it's a continuation or a potential continuation of the oppression and the status quo. It's a, it's a weapon and not a peace. Reconciliation always has to be invited by those who have been the oppressed. And so that was the insight that I will never, um, I will never walk away from. That was just such an amazing moment. So just following our specific experience in reconciliation, um, we arrived at Lambeth. You, you said there was a um, clearly a kerfuffle that was, was audible and visible in the news um, for anybody who was watching, even the mainstream press. It didn't have to be church press. But um, there was um, controversy over both the ideas of the call. You know, that's people say, oh, well, calls are a bad idea because this is about human dignity. We didn't know anything about it. But what had happened was we had all worked so carefully on our various calls and presented them. They were distributed about a week before we all departed to go to Lambeth. And in that time, one of the proposed outcomes for human dignity was to reaffirm Lambeth 110 from 1998, which was that marriage is between a man and a woman and that homosexual activity was not consistent with the, um, with the teachings of the church. And so, of course, that caused consternation. And then additionally, people learned that there would be voting devices, electronic ways to say, I agree with this call, I add my voice to it, I disagree with this call, or I do not add my voice to this call, it needs more work. And there were just two options. So everybody was, um, was very concerned, obviously. None of us who worked on the calls knew anything about voting machines at all. None of us who worked on the calls could fathom how an outcome like reaffirming Lambeth 110 could have gotten into the calls. I saw every time we changed a comma, it came back to me mm -hmm. on, on the reconciliation call. So I could not even understand how that happened, but somehow that happened. And so there was great consternation. So there were the two first conversations. Hello, kid. The two first conversations, um, they were not either human dignity or reconciliation. They were, they were things everybody agreed with. Safe, safe church, for example. There was nobody who would have voted against safe church. You want to know the support safe church got that call? 66% just because people were so upset about the voting machines for good reason. I mean, because that didn't, and it was just like, how do we do this? Um, let me also say that the that the um, there was very careful um, actions taken to be sure that only the bishops had access to the discussions on the calls, and 
not any of the spouses. The spouses were doing their thing in another venue. We all went together to the plenaries. We all went together to the keynotes. We all went together to worship. But the discussion of the calls was because it was so very controversial. Um, it was restricted, no press, no, no observers, no anybody. I had a bishop's tag to go into the reconciliation call because I was the one who was supposed to sort out any questions on content. So if somebody held up a green card, I was to rush to that site and explain the content. Um, so as I said, the first two calls, which were should have been universally approved, were, were not universally approved because of confusion and upset over the the voting machines, voting machines. How, how are they normally voted on then if the voting machines were new this year? Well, see, that's an important thing. And you asked that question and we can, we can take that digression and you can reorder it. But here's the deal. How is Lambeth Conference different from general convention? Mm -hmm. And the answer is related to what we talked about earlier. Lambeth Conference is not a legislative body, nor is the Anglican Consultative Council, a legislative body. It's a mm -hmm. conversational body. It's an educational body. It's a support body. It's a recommending and, and, and counseling body, a conciliar. It's not a conciliar body, but it's an it's a, uh, advice and, and prayer body. And so the voting is really an inaccurate way to describe the machines. It was a way of counting as it turned out. It was a way of gauging in a big disorderly room full of bishops who spoke, no kidding, 12 different languages. I mean, the room looked like the UN, Ivy. Mm -hmm. There were translation booths all up one side. I have photographs of this and I knew a lot of the translators and, and had relationships, you know, conversations with them all the way through. And the Brazilian translator particularly is on the Anglican Alliance team, which was my volunteer function. So, you know, you've got at all times, everybody's got a headset because it wasn't even always in English. There were Portuguese days, there were Swahili days, there were, there were French days, there were Portuguese days. And so it was, it moved around and um, there was always a headset for everybody. Everybody was issued one. So whatever you had to listen to on your channel so that you could hear. So why were there voting devices? It was so you could say whether... I add my voice to that call or it needs more work. I don't add my voice to that call. Mm -hmm. It was a method of gauging response that wasn't mm -hmm. dependent on a specific language or a specific, do you remember to hold your hand up? Or There was such confusion with the language. And I sat next to in the plenaries a number of times, um, bishops um, from Africa, and I speak a little Swahili, but not, well enough, especially when it's spoken fast by an expert. You know, he has to know I'm a beginner and he has to he has to know I'm not as good as he thinks I am and speak really slowly. But, you know, and then I start thinking he's asking me questions in English and I'm answering him in English and he's not getting what I'm getting. So there is a lot of UN style, you know, did you really hear it? Did you really understand it? Are we speaking in a in a common mm -hmm. language, um, can we understand each other? So that was the way to gauge it. But did it ruffle a lot of feathers and unsettle everybody? Absolutely it did because here's another learning. Um, you probably know this fact, the average Anglican. Got a stab at that one? Oh, you told us this last time you were <laughs> here. It's uh, 25. 
25-year-old black woman. 25-year-old Nigerian mother. Nigerian mother. <laughs> close, Ivy. I was really close. <laughs> it's really close, but, but it's really important to go national and to go continental. Because mm -hmm. in, in the United States, when, when we say things about, you know, that people won't like this or that's not what the church is doing or we need to or we, I think the people we need to be talking to about how to succeed in church planting is, is Nigeria. Seriously, they're doing that right. Um, but yeah, so, so we've, we're, not, we're not average. We're not, we don't represent a huge part. And yet, when you look over that sea of bishops and you see who has come and who's there, it is disproportionately American, right? What's that about? It's wealth and power. And so that's, you know, that's an important adjustment for us to make in our heads about how things work and with what voice we're speaking. Does it also have to do with how we, um, physically set up our churches that we just have a lot of I feel like there are so many bishops in America and I don't know enough about how no. other countries set up their dioceses and like larger provinces I think you call a them. lot of it's a lot of it's money I mean mm -hmm. to be fair a lot of it's money because I was on the phone this morning with a new bishop friend I made in um in Canterbury at Lambeth uh Bishop Samson Tuliapus in the Diocese of Kapanguria in Kenya. And the Diocese of Rhode Island is helping Bishop Samson out with a laptop and a printer. He can't communicate with his priests. He, you know, postal service, they don't have telephones. He can't call them. He can't, he can't send them an email. He can't send them a WhatsApp or a text message. And so you know, this is this is really the the best way because now at least he can you know he can print something out and get it to them and and they can email a little bit but it's not a it's not a widespread technology so um, the reason I think we have more and yes we have a bajillion bishops at least um, in comparatively smaller dioceses by number but the budgets are so very different six hundred. Maybe not that many. There were 658 bishops there, finally, with around 400 some odd spouses. So the total number, you know, is right around with staff and everybody, right around 1,500, uh, 1,500, 1,600 altogether. But the Compass Rose Society raised scholarships for over 400 bishops and spouses to come. And that's how a lot of folks came from Africa and other areas. And I think that, you know, with our numbers, especially our ASAs in typical American diocese on Sunday, we are wealthy with bishops. We have way more per worshiping congregant than probably any other province anywhere. But, you know, I think if you looked at Nigeria, they'd, they'd be, their ratios would be way higher congregant to bishop. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it, you know, it's money and all that. But um, so we're, we're talking about language and the voting machines and the reason for that. Mm -hmm. But so the first day, relatively safe issue. I can't remember whether it was safe church or, or 
the environment, but it was something on which no one, no one at all disagreed. And it got a 66% support. And then the next day, everybody's still mad about the voting machines. And then you're getting all of the, the pushback on, on what's true, which is that, and this was ultimately the conversation that came out, um, that we have to all be real and to understand who we are and who our majority is and what we care about and all of that, and that we can walk together without and still be different. We don't have to all be alike in order to walk together. In fact, if we're all alike, how could we possibly, each of us made in God's image, reflect God? It is a tiny, tiny vision of God to imagine that only those who agree with us look like God. And so that was, that was the moment. And it actually happened when I was on the floor for the conversation on the reconciliation call, which was the one I had worked on. And, you know, everybody was anxious. It had been, it had been a tough couple of days and, and the archbishop is, is funny and wonderful. And, you know, and he, he said, um, he had said in the plenary earlier, you know, I'm not going to ask you to stand on one foot if you think this, you know, because everybody was saying, we well, want this. If, if you agree, you say this. And if you don't agree, you, you know, you hold one hand out, you shout or whatever. He said, I'm not going to make you jump up and down on one leg if you think we need to change a comma. But, um, you know, here, let's, let's, um, let's find our support a different way. And so we had talked um, in our organizing meeting in the morning, the whole group, including Archbishop Tabo and the Lambeth Conference staffers and Lambeth Palace Reconciliation staff and all of the people who are working on this. And we'd agreed on the liturgy that the call would be discussed. We were very happy with our call. The call would be discussed in the tabletops of four to five bishops apiece. Um, and they would raise a green card if they had a content question, a red card if they had a process question. Bishop Ian Douglas, who was, who was the only other um, tech person on my uh, committee, on the drafting committee, he was going to go for process questions. He was to follow the red cards and I was to follow the green cards. Um, and nobody, somebody, one person raised up a green card and my heart just shot out of my chest. And I ran over to the table and they just wanted another copy of the calls. And so we got them another copy of the calls. And then when it was time for the liturgy, Archbishop Tabo asked them if they could, if they felt that they could offer the commitments to the environment and to reconciliation that they had made, each to the other at the table and to God, he asked them to rise. And um, the Holy Spirit blew through the room, and they did. They all stood. And um, I wasn't the only one who was looking at other people's tears through my own. It was a very holy moment. So that's what changed that, um, you know, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget how it felt in that room. And... You know, that was really the, that was the watershed in the whole conference where um, the archbishop had said that morning, um, you know, you could, you can have to acknowledge 
what the weight of the opinion in this room is. You know, they, we have to realize in the West that um, the majority believe after prayer, consideration, and as faithful people that marriage is between a man and a woman and that homosexual activity is not consistent with their values. That is a majority. And we, after prayer and thought, feel very differently. And that doesn't mean that either one of us, we can, we can walk together. We can walk together. And that was the, that was the thing. We can't, what we don't know, and, and I think we don't do a great job about this in the Episcopal Church, we don't understand we're not as culturally, culturally literate as we could be. And I know that this came a lot, came up a lot in the um, spouses conference, particularly where many of our loving, good-hearted, prayerful, faithful Christian spouses were so very upset about this single issue that that was, you know, they, they went in and they were going to teach the ones who were from the um, the majority world, which is what we have to call Africa and the global South, they were going to teach the majority world that they, you know, that they'd misunderstood things and they were going to have to change. And um, and that was the beauty of some of the reconciliation conversations that went on and some of the teaching conversations and sharing conversations was they just largely, we largely don't understand how other people live and don't understand that they're just trying to make it through another uh, day without being taken down by radical Muslims um, with, with automatic weapons in their churches because they associate with the Episcopal Church, which is against the teachings of Islam, you know, because many of them live in coastal areas where Islam is really big. We don't understand that many of them are in extreme food insecurity and are just trying to keep their children from dying from malnutrition or that due to global climate change, which affects the powerless nations the most, is caused the most by the powerful nations and hurts island and coastal communities most, um, has already hit them in big ways and has rendered their food insecure, their living insecure, has washed out houses, um, has taken away lands. And then the other reality that um, climate change leads to constrained resources and constrained resources lead to migration. And migration leads to conflict and war over constrained resources, which leads to further degradation of the environment. So it's a really scary downward spiral. And you see it a lot more in these stressed majority world contexts than you do in our relatively secure and politically stable environment in the United States. I feel like that's a really great place to end. There were just like so many mic drops there. You're like Beyonce at Coachella. <laughs> <laughs> So many moments. Um, so, um, is there 
any way that if we want to find out more about the Compass Rose Society, Absolutely. as well as um, Lambeth in general. I invite you to do that. First, Compass Rose Society, we are making a concerted effort to involve more people, more young people, more people around the world and different kinds of memberships. And I am calling that up uh, I usually have it right in. It's the Anglican Communion Compass Rose Society. It's at compassrosesociety.org. And our, our president is Bishop Daniel Gutierrez. And um, we are actually planning on inviting as one of our speakers at the annual general meeting, um, a bishop I met at Lambeth, Bishop Quito Akahu who is the head of the Indigenous Networks. He's a bishop in the province of um, New Zealand and Aotearoa and Polynesia. And just a wonderful guy, very active also in the Anglican Alliance and in the Communion Forest and in all of the um, environmental concerns. The, um, so I, I invite people to um, go to the Compass Rose Society. The other site I would recommend is lambethconference.org. And on that Lambeth Conference website, you can pick up today at Lambeth Conference, which has the daily rushes and videos of clips um, of what's going on and also the program for the day, the Bible verses for the day from First Peter. Um, wonderful photographs, beautifully documented and, and some just really amazing, amazing things. Um, and then the other piece that I want to invite everybody to is the... Um, Reverend Canon Sarah Snyder, who is the Archbishop of Canterbury's former um, Canon for Reconciliation, and she's the founding director of Rose Castle, which is an international foundation in Cumbria in Northern England. She has gone into some of the most entrenched conflicts in the world, whether it's Northern Ireland, Israel and Palestine, tribal conflict in, in Africa, all over the place, and world leaders and corporate leaders have sought her out to um, engage conversations across difference. Sarah is, if there ever were, was one, an Anglican communion rock star. And she is coming to Emmanuel Church on Monday, October 3rd um, to lead a habits conference. And we were all asked as we went off to Lambeth, as staffers, as bishops, as spouses, everybody who went we were asked to engage three habits of conference, and those habits were be curious, be present, and reimagine. Because it's really hard for us to understand somebody else's context if we can't see outside our own. And, and it's also hard to imagine, um, you know, what reconciliation is for. And you start saying, well, I'm, I'm all... I'm all good, you know, I get along with everybody, everything's fine, but there are even elements in our past that are different, difficult for us to accept. And there are elements in our future that, I mean, it's hard. How do you imagine an, a future when we might have to make real changes about how we, you know, how we drive cars, how we heat our homes, how we, you know, how, how we conduct our, our energy policy, how we conduct our lives. So there's, there's all sorts of be curious, be present, and reimagine conversation that we can do internally. 
Sarah will be coming for a habits conference on that Monday at Emmanuel. And we don't have the time and everything set up yet. There will be a diocesan sponsored reception afterwards. And I just think it should be a really great conference that we'd really like to include everybody in. That sounds amazing. Yes. And if someone wanted to connect with you personally, where do you live, function? How can people find Where do I live and move and have my being? Yes. I am pretty much at Emmanuel Church. I am, my email address is rector, R-E-C-T-O-R, I have to spell for the non-Episcopalians, rector at emmanuelchurch.org. And Ivy, I just want to say to you, I don't know if you saw it, but I now have the Reconciliation Plenary youth video. Oh, yeah. That you were up on the screen in front of a thousand people, 1500 people, your prayer and your your mm -hmm. photograph, as well as um, Kente's, as well as Emmanuel Boadas, Bishop Emmanuel Boadas, um, and the women's seminarians, Milka and Vicky from the Diocese of Western Tanganyika. And it was just, it was great. So I was really pleased with how that came out. Wonderful. Yes. I would love to see that. And we can link that as well. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Della, for being open to conversation. As you said, that yeah. that is the main point of the Lambeth Conference and being able to understand. So thank you so much for helping us understand as well a little bit better of what our Anglican heritage is. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. They lived not only in ages past, there are hundreds of thousands still. The world is bright with the joyous saints who love to do Jesus' will. You can meet them in school, or in lanes, or at sea, in church, or in trains, or in shops, or at tea. For the saints of God are just folk like me, and I need to be one too. Thank you for listening to Tea Time Theology, a ministry of St. John's Cathedral in Rhode Island. We would like to thank our producers, Mo Akande, Ivy Swinsky, and Taylor Wilkie. Special thanks to Moa Conde and David Hines and our sponsors, the Episcopal Diocese of Rhode Island and the Right Reverend Nicholas Nisley. Follow us at Tea Time Theology on all social medias.